Well, the title of this talk is um, Spiritual Urgency. And I would like to start it off or ground it by saying that the truth is the only thing that can satisfy all desires, that can quench all fears, fulfill all hopes, and liberate all beings. And that the truth is not something that can be given or even perfectly explained. It's something that has to be developed and discovered by each person within our own experience. In order to understand the Dharma or the truth, there are books and teachers and structures of support like this center. And we all really do need these things. We need to hear it again and again to, before it can kind of gradually dawn on us what is being said or what's behind the words or how to incorporate and see these truths within our heart, within our mind and our body and within the world around us. So we need to train and educate ourselves to let go of that which separates us from the truth, from our innate condition. It's quite simple, um, though it's difficult. We begin by seeing the moment when our mind goes out and grasps onto a thought or a construct about reality. And we learn to bring it back just in the simple awareness of being present. And from this present moment, all of these truths and freedoms and quenching of desires, it can all unfold from right here, from right now within ourselves. I would say that for myself, mostly what I see standing in the way of quote unquote the truth is my thoughts and my opinions and my perception of the world, my image of how things should be, my attachment to those images and the way I get into a struggle with things based on how um, I wish they were instead of how they are. As a fairly well-known Tibetan nun who spent a long time in a cave named Ani Tenzin Palmo once said, there's a world of difference between being controlled by our thoughts and not being controlled by them. For example, to um, cut to the chase here, um, how many of us recognize the difference between the President Bush in our head and the President Bush that's out there? When we think about Bush, don't we think that that's him? Or as Anagarika Manindra used to say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. <laughs> <laughs> It's also true that the thought of separation can become like a powerful wall in our minds against which we desperately beat our wings thinking that we aren't right or we aren't where we need to be and that we need to go somewhere else in order to find the truth. It's horrible to contemplate how self-perpetuating this cycle can become that we're not in the right place to attain knowledge. In fact, if we, if we, sometimes it can be good to take a distance from this and to say that, in fact, we are part of nature. There's no boundary between us and all that is. We really are one with everything and connected with everything. And the truth has to be within us or else it's not in any other place. Sometimes this sense of distance is actually talking about something that is real and needs to be worked on in practice the sense of distance from where we should be or where we need to be. Some other traditions talk about this kind of yearning as an innate force within the mind, the call of truth to itself, the need of the mind to know itself. There are things in the Bible like, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Or Rumi, the Sufi poet, 
who says, let yourself be silently drawn by the pull of what you really love. For myself, in the younger years of my practice, I had a huge amount of zeal and urgency and drive. I used to say to myself that I was like the bear that wanted to see the other side of the mountain. I wasn't really satisfied with where I was, and I wanted to know kind of what lay beyond appearances. In a sense, there's a way in which we don't necessarily understand what we're doing when we practice. Maybe ever, like we're always somewhat in one place and going to another place, although we're always in the present moment. For example, we don't examine very well our desire. What our desire wants is the end of desire, but we think it wants the object. But in fact, if our, we, sometimes this can be clear if you're obsessed with sort of improving some certain part of your life or something like that, or say, improve, say you want like a certain pair of shoes, you see them and stuff like that, and maybe you put off buying them until your taste changes or the style changes, and then you don't want them anymore. And it's just as much of a relief as if you bought them. But it's very hard to recognize this desire for cessation within the desire itself because it's so fixated upon the thing that it thinks that it wants. It would be just easier if the desire came to an end on its own. Similarly, with a sense of a spiritual goal, I remember um, feeling that I really had to go somewhere. And all the cuckoo things I did in my early practice are kind of fun or funny to think about now like the time when I did a nine-hour sitting at IMS, and I went from about three in the morning until noon. And um, it just was kind of one thing after another. It went on and on, and it took me almost an hour to unbend my legs at the end. <laughs> and I felt like I'd cheated because a few times my rear end got sore and I lifted myself up like this. <laughs> so I went into Manindra, who was my teacher at the time, and he said, what was the object of mind? And I said, well, I had a lot of objects. And he was kind of like, ah, pfft. Like, he wanted to know if I had the, like, cessation of body and mind because I had sat for so long, but no. And I also laugh more to remember that my de great determination was to be like the Buddha. I wasn't going to get up until I was free. Or if I didn't really get free, I at least might get rid of my cold. <laughs> well, neither one happened. My roommate and I also used to pass around photos of dead people that somebody had who had worked in a morgue, um, thinking that we were going to improve our practice by some special means to really, you know, frighten ourselves into practicing more. But in fact, it was more like, you know, sharing mad magazines or something. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, I had the sense at that time that um, a lot of my effort was not really directed the way that it needed to be, like with the metaphor of crossing the river, that sometimes I was going directly upstream and sometimes letting myself being carried away downstream. But somewhere inside myself, I had the faith that eventually I might get across to the other side if I just kind of stayed at it long enough. Some sense of general direction and a sense of faith and trust that if I put myself in these situations, I would eventually find some relief. So in this sense, the notion with um, spiritual urgency, as it's said in the text, is to let this yearning and urgency turn you toward the Dharma and turn you toward the truth, rather than turning you toward ordinary types of objects or activities. I chose this topic last fall when there was already a sense of direness or a sense of emergency in the world, a feeling that our security is under threat 
that life as we know it, or even life itself, may be under threat. And I thought that these conditions would be good for a type of talk about urgency, <coughs> to turn the mind to the Dharma instead of rushing into fear or reactivity or anger or self-righteousness. In times of peace and tranquility and prosperity, if complacency becomes a danger, practitioners are urged to contemplate and think about the inherent fragility of life as a spur to meditation practice so that it might be considered in a sense a good thing when the fragility of conditions comes to the surface and becomes obvious to everyone. I have an argument, or I have had an argument with my stepdaughter who used to say that um, it didn't, sort of doesn't matter how we act because the United States was going to remain the same forever and nothing could ever challenge our way of life. I had this argument until about two years ago where she lives in New York so she doesn't think that way anymore. And she came back to me, she's 17, and she said, um, well, you remember that argument that we had. Um, so certainly if we look around the world, we can see some of the ways that sort of this drama plays out based on sort of forces in the mind, that fear and anger and violence are things to learn to turn away from, that the world now seems more full of delusions and greed and deceit and hard-mindedness, a sense of revenge or wounded identity. All these things are operating out there now and they're very, very frightening. We can see also the power of negative or positive intentions. We can see the cause and effect of karma. We can see what happens when people grasp on to ego identities and national identities and create conflict based on ideologies, even religious ideologies. How dangerous these things can be. There's a way that if we look at this from the point of view of the Dharma, we can see that this drama is an expression of the Dharma, which should point us back toward examining our own minds and seeing how powerful the forces in our minds can be. All of these things are sort of collectively expressed outside of us as a drama. And it can be hard to, in ourselves, turn it around and look at ourselves. But that's what we think all the leaders should do. So that's, I think, what we should also do. Classically contemplating the danger of samsara is the source of urgency. And urgency is considered the main source of effort in the Pali Canon. So this is a good time to look around and check out the sense of danger. Classically, it's called the Samvega Watu, the sources of emotion to contemplate birth, aging, sickness, death, the lower realms, the suffering of the past and future lives, and the difficulty of keeping our lives together. So I think this contemplation is actually natural for us right now. We don't have to actually do that much that's artificial to um, put it together. We don't have to sit on our couch and force ourselves to do it. The next step after creating urgency is to create confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. This is called creating urgency through knowledge, through recognizing the nature of life. There are some other forms of urgency too. Urgency through compassion, the desire not to harm. The sort of bad one is urgency through terror, which is associated with hatred and fear. 
They say when hatred is weak, fear arises, and when hatred is stronger, harshness arises. Well, we can analyze that too in the world around us. But it's very important to remember to turn the mind to the Dharma at these times too, because these frightening outward conditions don't in themselves constitute a training. They can all too easily induce panic or rage, despair, or other forces of reactivity. That's why it's nice to train in a time of peace, because to recognize your reactivity in small ways can help you when things become more like a crisis. We urgently need to develop the power of choice to let go of those images in our minds and re-enter the present moment and discover our awareness in peace. Also, we need to face what the situation is with courage and use it to sharpen our choices. Chakdu Tulku, a lama who died this winter, said, just before he died, he wrote a letter to his students saying, I find the currents of deep disquiet over what is evolving in the world. We seem to be living in the presence of an invisible but razor-sharp sword that suddenly slices through existence as we know it. As practitioners, we should neither deny its presence nor yield to anxiety and fear, but rather use it to whet the precision of our choices and the keenness of our skillful means. Pray that hard-heartedness and the righteous anger that are so prevalent soften, and that moral discipline, patience, and virtue will pervade. One of the ways to soften our minds when they start to churn or rage is to drop into the present moment and use the training of meditation to connect ourselves with the breath and the body sensation. Train the mind to turn to the practice and not spin out like an egg beater of reactivity. With all of this sense of outward urgency, I was noticing how many sirens went by um, at the very end of our sitting, that there can be this sense of urgency to try to do something. And some of that passion is needed to turn the mind around and stop it in its tracks when it starts to spin out in scenarios. Urgency can become a focused determination to turn inward and then open, to allow a softening and openness in which recognition and discernment can arise. When the mind sees itself as it is, the root of suffering is cut in that moment. We can relate to what's happening without possessing the situation, without rejecting the situation, without denying what is true, but resting in pure awareness. As the poet Wallace Stevens said, seeing nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. So much of what is going on seems a fabrication. It seems kind of unreal. Well, it is. Ajahn Chah said, when suffering arises, it agitates us. We feel ill at ease. What is the cause of that suffering? It's because we don't know the truth. This is the cause. When this cause is present, suffering is arise, arises. Once arisen, we don't know how to stop it. The more we try to stop it, the more it comes on. We say, don't criticize me, don't blame me, etc. So the Buddha taught that the way leading to the end of suffering is to make the Dharma arise as a reality in our own minds. We become one who witnesses the Dharma for himself or herself. 
Good and evil are both worldly dharmas. They're just states of mind. If we don't see this, we grope in the darkness and we don't know the way out. We try to defeat others, but in doing so, we only defeat ourselves. But if we have mastery over ourselves, we have mastery over all. He's making a very deep and subtle statement here. He doesn't mean that one person just sitting and meditating can stop everything that's happening in, in the world outside. What does mastery of ourselves mean? It means that we learn how to use the practice to relinquish states of agitation, to see into the causes of agitation, and to find tranquility in this moment and in every moment when we need to. Check and see if your practice helps you to overcome your problems in life. Part of the practice is something that we train in here on the cushion, but it's not really just meditation. The Dharma is a full life practice. It's ethics, it's concentration, and it's wisdom. Ethics is based on action and compassion. And the five precepts are something that um, other talks probably have gone into, but it's basically expanding an activity in the world through compassion in whatever way we find it and not harming other people. Concentration, I would say that that training is learning to focus the mind where it needs to be focused and learning to drop the involvement with things that aren't necessarily productive. Wisdom is knowing what to be involved with, what to allow your mind to be involved with and what not. Also seeing the nature of what is this world and what is this life. So that when the sense of urgency arises, please uh, recognize that it's time to engage in Dharma training, a full and complete effort every day. It's not just on the cushion, it's wherever we find ourselves on the sidewalk or a situation where we feel like shouting at someone or someone's been unkind or we're watching the news, all of those times are times to turn around and recognize our mental state, ground ourselves, come back into the presence and see if we can find just some connection with pure awareness. This is about clarity, not about denial of what's happening or what's arising, but it's also seeing the nature of what's arising in ourselves and outside. This was said by the Blessed One, said by the Arhant, so have I heard. Endowed with two things, a monk lives at ease in this present life and is appropriately aroused for the ending of the fermentations. Uh, the fermentations being the stuff our mind does. Which are these two things? A sense of urgency and awe toward things that should inspire urgency and awe. And feeling urgency and awe, appropriate exertion. Endowed with these two things, a monk lives in ease in the present life and is appropriately aroused for the ending of the fermentations. Feeling urgency, awe toward what should inspire it, the wise, masterful, ardent monk should investigate, monk or person or woman or whoever, should investigate with discernment. One who lives thus ardently, not restlessly at peace, committed to awareness, tranquility, will attain the ending of suffering and stress. What this describes, both in saying a sense of urgency and awe toward things that should inspire urgency and awe, and feeling urgency and awe appropriate exertion, the word appropriate is important here. It ends in talking about discernment. 
So it's in a way moving from the conceptual level of life, which has its own reality, to a truth beyond concepts, to a truth that can be discovered in the present moment through meditation. For example, one of the contemplations to arouse urgency was the contemplation of death. Well, it's true that all of us will die, and yet, um, and to think of that and to think of how fast time passes and how little time we actually spend practicing can be a way of really sharpening our effort. And yet in any present moment, the Lord of death isn't present yet. In this present moment, if you look at yourself, if you close your eyes and look into your mind, is there aging there? Is your mind a man? Is your mind a woman? All the things that we think about ourselves, like whether we, where we put ourselves on the scale of whether I look good, bad, ugly, whether I'm sort of too fat or too thin, all of those things are the conceptual level of life. If you just relate to life on the conceptual level, you'll be dragged in every direction by everything that's going on. If you learn how to ground yourself in the present moment of the breath of your sensations and of just seeing the movements of mind as movements of mind, feelings as feelings, opinions as opinions, you can be free from that. It's like sinking below the waves of the ocean and just recognizing that there's a little bit of space The nature of reality is so ephemeral. There was never a moment when we weren't experiencing something at some level. And what is experience? It's quite sort of odd. It's kind of transparent. It's not really something, but it's not really nothing. It never arose. It never passed away. It never was here. It never was gone. If you have a sense of that kind of softness and that presence and unconstructed capacity to just be with things, it can be the beginning of letting go of some of the harshness with which we kick ourselves around and other people around. But it doesn't mean to retreat into some kind of ideal space where nothing at all is happening. We have to examine for ourselves what is real for us. I'm not here saying that nothing is going on. The concept of the situation that we carry around can harm us. We need to be able to recognize that our life in the present moment is different from our concept of our situation. At the same time, whatever is real for us is that which is unavoidable in life. Let's investigate with discernment what we see as being unavoidable and see how can we open to those realities? How can we investigate? How true is it? Anytime we turn our discernment in this direction, we're training ourselves to use every situation as a catalyst for practice. Things that feel dire can send us to the cushion they should also send us into our mind to look inwardly, not just project outside the source of our problems, that something is happening to us, that someone is doing something to us. We need to really feel our feelings and recognize them and take a hold of our reactivity. This sense of urgency can send people in all different directions. Today I got a um, one of those millions of email forwards that everybody gets, but um, it was called um, Bearing Witness, and it was a lot of women in Santa Fe who 
uh, took off all their clothes and formed a peace sign and then took a picture of themselves. <laughs> so it can, you know, the sense of urgency can send you in a lot of, to a lot of different places. <laughs> it was kind of cute. <laughs> I thought it must be warmer than here. <laughs> Another thing that's important in recognizing what our own experience is, is to recognize that not everyone experiences this world situation in the same way. And that there's no sort of sense that everyone should recognize the same kinds of things about what's going on, either inside or outside, with life, with death, with humiliation, with disappointment. Yet again, on the other hand, there's no one who's going to get through life without some sense of challenge and loss to their ego, to their preferences, to how they see the world. Our very bodies are doomed, unfortunately. Ramana Maharshi said that the body is a disease. So don't, he said, so don't worry if I die, the body's a disease anyway. Urgency is said to come from seeing into the truth of the five aggregates, which is sort of the, com the components of body and mind. Our sensitive minds are apparently chained to change and loss. Are they chained or is there a space of freedom? What happens actually when we cultivate an awareness of death? Larry's given several courses on this. And I'm sort of considering joining a group on the year to live, which is a sort of cultivation of urgency around focusing on the fact that I'm going to die. So in the preliminary meeting, one of the exercises was to think about the places in my house where I would be willing to die. <laughs> and I thought, like, I don't even really like my bed that much. <laughs> And I actually went around, I thought of one place that I would be happy to die, which is the place where I meditate. And then I started thinking about, okay, well, would I be happy to die here in front of the kitchen sink or in the bathroom or in my bed? And it came to really bring a vividness and acceptance of all the corners of my house. I would kind of mentally died in every one. And I thought, well, it's actually okay if it happens here or here. So that it's not necessarily um, the result if sort of when some of these contemplations are properly applied, they don't end up freaking you out. They sometimes have some kind of wonderful consequences. These are things that we're supposed to practice every day. Have I connected with my life? Have I made enough effort to be present? Have I made enough effort to let go of my opinions, of my views, of my hardness? Have I opened my heart today? In the Vishuddhi Maga, spiritual urgency is said to be a sign of intelligence, whereas um, the deluded type is called um, smoking by day and fire by night, which is, means that you sort of spend a lot of time making plans. That's the smoking by day, and fire by night is dissipating yourself in little projects. That's me. <laughs> the life of humankind is short. A wise man recognizes this and acts as one whose head is burning. Death will never fail to come. In the Tibetan tradition, before every meditation session, you turn your mind to contemplate how precious your time is here and how little time you spend practicing and how lucky you are to have this time to practice and really try to make the most out of it. These are contemplations that we use when the mind needs to be encouraged. I recently taught a retreat in Santa Fe where a lot of people were saying like, um, that they don't suffer. And um, one woman was very pretty comfortable in her life. She was retired and she had a little enclave and she said, um, 
I, you know, everyone's telling me that I don't suffer enough. And what should I do? So, <laughs> I, I kind of said to you, well, don't worry, like, I don't think you have to apply anything. Just apply, just look at your situation and see the, see the nature of your situation. There's no need to haul in and make yourself suffer anymore. But then after the retreat, I had dinner with a um, Zen teacher. And the Zen teacher said, well, you did the granting way. That's called a nice, you know, just supporting the person and kind of gently talking to them. And then she said, you could have tried the grasping way in which you say, contemplate your death. <laughs> and I said, well, I kind of did suggest that. And she still didn't really go for it. She said she didn't really care. Like, it was okay with her to die. And she said, well, in that case, in Zen, you just ring the bell and send them out of the room. And I said, well, <laughs> in Vipassana, you can't send them out of the room. So she said, try the stone face. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but after the retreat, we actually talked with that uh, woman and we gave her a text about just examining pleasantness and looking deeply into the nature of pleasantness. It's fine. The Dharma is everywhere. It doesn't mean that you actually have to be suffering and freaking out in order to see how things work and how things are constructed. I said, if your mind is grasping on to the sense of stability that you have in your life, then maybe you need to recognize that and that would be enough. You don't have to c suddenly like go and live in a homeless shelter in order to be closer to the truth of life. Although I think, no, for some of us in the recent couple of years, it, the fact that the Dharma is available to rich and poor is probably um, a good thing. <laughs> in any case, back to spiritual urgency. Swami Krishnananda, and from the Hindu tradition, this word is also used. It's in the Yoga Sutras as a sense of ardency or deep yearning or aspiration. It's sometimes the perfect tra uh, Sanskrit translation means um, total force, urgency. So applying your practice with total force. Swami Krishnananda says, devastating is the only word that brings out the meaning, the meaning hidden in the word samvega. It breaks our personality. It takes possession of us. A person who doesn't feel the need for God cannot ask for him and the need is felt only when the world cracks under one's feet. A time comes in everyone's life when such an experience is encountered. And I think if we're sensitive, we see that some of this cracking under our feet happens a little bit every day. Like there can be little disappointments every day and watch how we relate to them. When our partner doesn't do something we ask them to do and we think that they never do the things that we ask them to do, or when someone who's usually kind of nice to us isn't nice to us, and even though we recognize that they may be involved in something of their own, that we still feel some kind of reaction, some kind of disappointment. How do we relate to those moments? Do we fixate the situation? Do we believe that this is a real situation? Can we look at our minds and their movements with compassion and see through them to some extent? I think the interesting thing about the crisis in the United States now is that the surface of our lives is somewhat unchanged relatively. We all have, or many of us I would say, or some of us, have the mental effects of a sense of crisis. And yet in the present moment the appearance of things is just about the same. So we can very easily separate the sense of mental agitation from physical distress because our, our lives are physically probably just about as comfortable as they ever were but we're worried that they won't be at some point, or we're worried about how other people are going to be feeling. We can access a sense of disturbance and a sense of lack of disturbance. 
So it's nice also sometimes to just return to the appearance of things, yet not deny the situation. See the relativity and the concocted quality of the world crisis right now. One teacher said there's no need to see the unconditioned if you understand the conditioned properly. Also, I would say that in the training, sometimes rather than developing urgency um, in a crisis, we need to tranquilize our minds. We need to turn the mind to pure awareness, which balances everything. Sometimes we may need to turn away from the source of a disturbance and take some distance, take some space, feed ourselves nicely or relax or um, walk in nature or look out of a window or find ways of relaxing the sense of disturbance just with very common and ordinary things. Buy a flower and bring it into your home. This turning of the mind can um, help us drop the agitation completely when you turn on the awareness, when you can see very clearly the nature of what's going on, somehow the root of the agitation can be cut. When something unwanted drops into your lap, you have a negative reaction, such as anger, dislike, envy, upset, irritation, anxiety, depression, mental anguish, or fear of death, or fear of rebirth. When such reactions arise, identify them as such. Do not renounce them. Do not indulge in them. Do not refine them away. Do not transform them. Do not suppress them. Rather, rest evenly in the naturally settled state of awareness and evenness. See the mind in which things vanish naturally and leave no trace. So this is the unique power of awareness when it's developed to notice that things come and go naturally and leave no trace. We develop a place in which we can constantly train to be aware and open and let be what is, not relating through life through reactions, images, and preferences. In this way, peace arises naturally from inside. We see that anger and fear have no reality except that which we give to them. There can be a tendency in which when spiritual urgency is felt or when urgency is felt, we say to ourselves, no, this is not a time to recognize fear as fear. This is time to go on eBay and buy a gas mask, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And to that, I would suggest that you can do both if you want to, just to see if you can feel and recognize the movements of the mind and then take actions that you decide whether or not they're appropriate. Even sometimes you may do something that you know is a little hysterical, but hey, what can you say? I put some glasses of bottles of water in the basement. It was okay, it made me feel better, it sort of, but then, you know, it didn't actually attack the root of the whole problem. (laughs) Here's another um, email forwarded that, um, no, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to, okay. To such a division between cushion and activity, we say that you can do both things. You can both contemplate and act. Awareness does not mean inaction. It doesn't mean that you should suddenly stop and sit down and shut your eyes. It means being aware in movement sometimes. It means those sharpened choices that Chakdu Tulku talked about. Not to let yourself be dragged around by the furious movements of one's mind. It's sort of um, the capacity to do the opposite of what the mind says is obvious. As I was saying, the desire of desire is for the end of desire, not necessarily for the object. Getting the object doesn't bring the desire, the the sort of source of desire to stillness at all. In fact, it may inflame more desire. Once you buy the shoes, then you need the, you know, skirt. (laughs) So to be able to turn the mind the other way and look at itself, 
it's kind of a trick and it's hard and it's subtle to develop, but it does work. Being able to look into our patterns of reactivity and see how powerful our ego might become. Who is all of this happening to? Or when might all of this, you know, when all this stuff happens, who's it going to happen to? Me. And who's doing it? Them. Larry talks quite a lot about sort of this making of self and other and how to drop into the present moment where those things are seen in a kind of relative way, where the meanness relaxes a little bit. <coughs> Seeing how much our thoughts and fears are about the past and the future, be able to be present and see when the mind reaches out and grasps and brings something into this room, when brings, you know, bush and Iraq and everything into your house doesn't mean to deny what's happening, but also to recognize what the mind does to itself and then be able to choose a response rather than just react to the swirling of one's thoughts. Christopher Titmus says that when, you know, sort of leaders say, well, we had no choice, in fact, they don't because it's very hard to develop the capacity to have a compassionate choice in life. It requires this mindfulness of one's feelings and recognition of states of mind as states of mind the capacity to take our experience apart a little bit. Saying that a feeling is only a feeling is the beginning of freedom. It stops us from falling into set patterns. For example, say anger. Um, when I was talking to about urgency based on terror, um, where it goes is usually either into anger or fear. Anger is usually seen as justified. And in anger, we uphold the certainty of our interpretation. We don't explore the point of view of other people. We're unaware that our views are, can be quite arrogant. We think that I know what to do. <coughs> we may drop into cynicism. We don't recognize that we have to find peace here and now, not elsewhere, or not by sort of out there doing something necessarily. Anger only ceases with non-anger, as the Buddha said. Anger doesn't come to an end with more anger. That's the sort of mentality of people who have to cr have violence in order to end violence. So with anger, we don't challenge our perceptions and we don't find very much openness. We don't drop into the moment, into the body. We don't recognize that things are much more complex and mysterious than we know. When our mind goes off into fear, fear of loss, fear of what people may think of us, fear of future pain, physical or mental, we let ourselves be carried away. We let ourselves be clouded. We let ourselves fall into a sense of helplessness many times. And we don't see that this is something that our mind is doing to us. The Buddha said no one can harm us as much as our own ill-directed minds. And I think so far in my life that's true. I don't think anyone else has ever hurt me as much as I've hurt myself. I wouldn't say, I'm not blaming it on myself, but it's sort of what's going on in there is much more painful usually than what happens outwardly. It's like that thing where cowards die a thousand times before their deaths. It's they imagine their death so many times. A brave man dies but once. <laughs> a yogi dies but once, perhaps. Well, who knows? Maybe we all die thousands of times. That's another thing. Well, say like when we perceive a threat, the immediate thing that comes up is usually fear. And the fear can move into despair and hysteria and gas mask buying and all the rest. We need to learn how to actually break this state of mind and this cycle have the courage to live with how things are, even if the thing that we're afraid of starts to happen. It means that in this case, the urgency is that we need to work hard as a meditator 
to cultivate a sense of tranquility and peace in our lives, a sense of choice about how we use our minds and our attention, but also work hard as a person, as a social being, maybe as a political person, if that's how you feel. Some people may want to just go to their cushion. Some people may want to go to the street. Some people may want to rest with how things are. Any kind of mental movement is there to be looked at. What's most important is to transform fear and create safety in ourselves and outside of ourselves, I believe. Ultimately, through this practice and through this recognition of the truth, we find that awareness and stillness can see how our preoccupations take shape and how they fall apart again. We can see how the mind becomes embroiled and then how it disentangles itself all by itself. There's a book in the library when it opens again by a Thai lady named Upasika Ki called An Unentangled Knowing. It's very sweet and very direct. Her language is quite simple. She was never trained in any way. She says, this part of the mind is unentangled, empty and free. See that the true nature of the mind is that it can be empty. That's why I say that Nibbana doesn't lie anywhere else. It's right here, right where things go out and are cool. It's staring us right in the face. Well, we can rely on our inner awareness for that recognition that it's right here and right now. As one Tibetan Lama said to me, one of my favorite quotes, um, I was telling him I was scared about something, and um, he said, well, are you afraid that things are empty or that they're not? That's it. sit for a couple minutes and I guess um, those who would like to leave may leave and those who would like to sit a few minutes and then um, have a sharing or discussion can stay. So anyone's welcome to speak from their observations or ask a question or whatever. Is it to you? I, I can't tell yet. Hey, the interesting. One of the. I'm only when I say uh, no, I'm really no. I hope something I said makes some kind of sense to you. Then. I'm sorry. I said I hope something that I said made some kind of sense to well, you in did, some way. Actually. Well, one of the things I love about Buddhist practice is that the spirituality is sort of right here and in, in being present with yourself, and that the truth unfolds from you know, things as they are, as you are in the moment, so that um, it's not like it's something in another 
place. So it can be very direct. It's very sweet in that sense. Sometimes the sense of spirit means it sounds like it's some form of a gas, you know, that has to come out of your head or be higher or something like that. But it's actually very much in the present in that sense. And there's a way that if you can make, say like when you have fear or anger, a lot of what happens is that you're not able to be with what's, either with how you're feeling or what someone is doing and something. And if you can kind of take a breath and kind of step into it and just let it be the way it is, there's something that shifts many times. You can say, oh, I'm scared, but I might still need to say this thing. Or, you know, I'm mad, but I still love that person. Or I'm mad and something needs to be said, you know, whatever kinds of things like that. That person's being aggressive. I need to tell them so. Things like that. Say, you know, the woman out of the just as an example. Mm-hmm. That's an easy example. Uh, we're having a disagreement, okay? Um, Very natural thing. Is taking a breath, can you do that with just, I mean, how fast can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, it can be mentally, yeah. You can count to 10 is actually not the worst advice, you know, like (laughs) taking a break sometimes or going to some other thing can be good, but it can also just be remaining present if someone is, for example, if you feel criticized to sort of stay there and listen and let yourself feel that cringing, awful feeling that you might feel and um, just be in the situation in a way rather than closing yourself off. So it's not necessarily always taking time away. You know, taking a breath sounds like, but it kind of it means, I'm using it figuratively, like soften your your reactivity or something. One thing that's useful in a couple is to notice how much you think of them as the source of all your problems and, or <laughs> you know, and how easy it is to not sort of see what you're feeling, but rather think that it's something that they're doing that is your problem. You know, if only they would do something different. But it's not that my irritability and perfectionism is the problem. It's that they will never wipe the counter or something like that, or whatever your own version of that thing is. You know, it's just couples can be a very dense place to do those things. Anybody? plans are happening in the present, right? So you, there's no need to not make a plan. Present, yeah. 
There's no need to not make a plan. If you just know that you're making your plan in the present and you know what it is to be looking into the future, then it's fine. There's nothing you have to suppress or get rid of. You just know that you're looking to the... But you also recognize that it's a plan and a fantasy and stuff like that. Is that something you do a lot? Do you, do you do a lot of that? Um, I've been doing a lot of it at work. Like, this is what I'm going to do in my next business. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like some constraints. So I'm realizing I have been... Oh, you've said something. Well, the, con- the conceptual thing. You kept talking about con- thinking conceptually. And I think I'm, I'm realizing I do that. Oh, well, this shouldn't be this way. Right. I'll do it differently. You know, next time, rather, maybe it should be this way. Um, right. And so... Or it is this way. So, I mean, I think sometimes the capacity to plan is really important. Like, if something isn't right, it doesn't mean that you just, like, absorb the shock and leave it that way, you know, that you can change it. But if you find yourself compulsively always planning because you're frustrated or something like that, and you spend your whole time in the future, and it's actually fueled by irritation or incapacity to be present, then it kind of can become a stretched out, weird way to live. Um, that's all. I think it's okay you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just notice, you know, I guess it's really about noticing the nature of planning and the nature of the past and the future. There is no past and future ever, right? Like when the future arrives, it's going to be now, right? And there's no past because all the past is, is your memory in the present moment now. And it's, that's kind of a weird thing, but it's a cool thing. Is that right? a lot of times um, all I can do in certain when it gets kind of intense the only thing I can do is say that I'm kind of caught right now you know that I feel like things are just wild in there or I'm like really depressed or I'm really flailing and just get a sense for the flavor of what that's like I'm lost you know I'm annoyed I'm you know premenstrual or whatever those things definitely come up and I just 
swirl around and I can sort of like come out for air a little bit, like go to the breath or kind of take a break from it sometimes by looking at something else or going to a movie or deliberately doing some loving kindness practice to myself or to the other person. But sometimes they do seem to have kind of a life of their own. And so that um, in a sense to be able to kind of relax within sort of that, like what they say about, um, you know, when you're in a riptide, you know, sort of relax for a little while and then swim sideways. Don't sort of try to fight and suppress it and change it and make it into something else. Like it's sort of an art to letting yourself be swirled around until it finally spits you out because it's going to end. I mean, it'll be over in a day or two or a few days or a year or this pattern will not always last. And if you can become more comfortable when you're in it, then you can start to see a little bit more about what the nature of it is so that you may be caught, but you're not 100% caught. You're maybe 98% caught, you know, or something like that. So you don't have to just change it into something else immediately because I think that can create a whole other kind of struggle, you know. Yeah, yeah. But when you recognize the moment of having a choice, like sometimes I feel like, you know, here's this thing that I always get mad about and I can feel my mind sort of going... Like almost a feeling of like, ah, and falling into it. And it's very hard at that point to stop, even to recognize that I'm kind of about to go into this thing is an interesting thing to say like, okay, I could just drop it right now, but I don't want to. <laughs> you know? like, and you can, but you feel that as like, here's your mind, like just starting to slide. Um, so it, I think it all becomes very interesting if you're not as judgmental and thinking that you have to be in a tranquil state all the time. What you need to be able to do is sort of examine how things are. When you have a choice, when you know you want to make a choice, then also be able to make one and come into the present and just see that that's a mind state. Like you're usually when, I mean, usually when you're mad, there's a lot of images rolling around. The how things should be and how I should be and how the other person should be and how the world should be and all those things. So that an occasional attempt to be present and admit how things really are and maybe um, you've been going at something for a long time in an unproductive way and you're just mad again in the same way. Sometimes it needs, you know, if there's something like that that you find recurring in your life a lot, then it can be time to ask for advice from somebody or something like that if it's sort of the same thing that keeps happening. (laughs) My favorite, the easy approach. (laughs) sort of let it drop there 
but I noticed coming out of that that that, that triggered a lot of churn. I'm sure. <laughs> and what did you do at that point with the churn? Um, I just sat with it, you know, and I've been open to the possibility of talking with him about the whole sequence of events, but um, I haven't sort of made that happen, and, um, you know, it just feels like a timing thing to me, that if we reflect on it together at a good time, then it could be useful, and, and at any other time it would just sort of foment more churn. Do you think that the person will be receptive at any time to your talking about it? In the past, when this kind of, we've known each other for like 20 years or something like that, so I think we've been through multiple versions of this stuff because I think it comes from other places and it's, it's sort of embedded in our karmic structures or whatever, so <laughs> we, we deal with this kind of thing in an ongoing way. So you maintain a relationship, and at times there's a resolution around that stuff, right? You kind of know how to work it out. Potential for reflection, you know, and a sense of openness in in him. Um, But if 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 it's not timed well, then I would just receive more reactivity. Right. Wouldn't have been helpful to mention. Can you sort of just, even in one moment, kind of just drop it and let it just be the way it was? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's basically how I am any time, unless it happens to be some appropriate right. when we happen to be together and it happens to make sense to reflect on it. Right. And my general mode is... Just um, that. Not letting it plague your mind all the time or whatever. Yeah. And does, um, does do these conversations lead to change or is it just kind of a pattern you guys go through? Like, a, does it slightly improve? Um, I mean, I think by and large our relationship is a lot, is, is um, kind of robust and, and um, you know, toward healthy, which I, I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, like, like, you know, 15 years ago maybe it wasn't, you know, so I think, right. I feel like there's, there's learning, you know, and mm-hmm. development of awareness. Sounds good. Sounds like you're handling it in a you know good human way, and maybe just to, you know sort of recognize the affection that you have for that person when you're bringing up the thing that's a problem. You know, just to enhance that side sometimes can be nice in a conflict with someone that you have an ongoing relationship with, and maybe some patterns to remember that you care. You know, or so, you know in some way, whatever way you do care. That actually relates to a fear that I have in this particular relationship because I feel like tapping into an affection or a love and kindness that um, that, that could create space for the person to not take responsibility for their mm-hmm. behavior. And so, it, you know, it, it makes me think of, you know, such like abusive relationships where, um, you know, somebody is being beaten by another person or something like that, and then they remember how much they love that person and that enables them to, right. you know, perpetuate the cycle. But does it have to be like that? Or can you just have affection with someone and also see that they're abusive and stop them from being abusive out of your affection for them or you know, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can have affection with wisdom and not, you know, like for, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean come hit me again, I don't think. It means being free of the inner impact of the thing the person did, free I- inside yourself. But it doesn't just instantly happen. 
kind of you're free of them kind of and you can let the past be the past and let kind of let them be in a way who they are and but their you know their own mental viciousness just hurts them more than you so i don't know i sound like i know a lot right <laughs> when you put this like you know rubber on the road it's different <laughs> it's kind of more messy Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what? Yeah, like, go ahead. What? I just, judgment is very comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not very comfortable, but it's very... <laughs> but it's um, habitual. It's right. very habitual. Mm-hmm. And for my trap and other people. And I wonder if there are any practices particular well, there is a loving kindness practice that's uh, taught here that is uh, good, but also recognizing um, the actual feelings in your body of judgment, rather sort of getting a little bit out of your head, you know, and not immediately going up into that sort of ivory tower-ness. I mean, I think if you have a strong habitual pattern, sometimes it can make you feel like it's kind of going on without you, but if you drop into your body and really uh, ground yourself in some of your body sensations and use the breathing and the and that to kind of ground yourself and become present, then your opinions are kind of in another place, you know, so that c- developing a connection with sort of something that isn't an opinion and in a way, like your breath is not subject to your opinions. It's not really subject to words or anything, right? Is there anything wrong with it, with your breathing? No. Um, yeah. No, I actually, the work that I do mm-hmm. is developing awareness through the body. I really? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the yeah, answer. I was thinking if I use that to help myself at those times. Um, I do, and sometimes it helps, and other times I just feel like a tinier container. Mm-hmm. Like, stuck in my physical experience, as opposed to, like, that it's a different channel. <coughs> Well, maybe the the feeling of stuckness is then something that you could just soften toward and just let it kind of let it be there and not start fighting with it too much. Because the feeling of stuckness is a mental feeling; it's not a it's not actually present in your body. Stuckness is like usually kind of a it's a it's an emotion of sorts. So when you feel stuck, see if you can find where the stuckness actually is. Where is it? Um, that's the more direct way. But if you want to learn lo- loving-kindness practice, you can ask um, Larry or Narayan or Michael to show you how to do it. Because sometimes it's nice to just you know, pop out of your rut and do something different with your mind. And that's part of what the use of loving-kindness practice is. It actually trains you to feel it's very empowering because you realize that you can be the source of good feelings in a situation. You don't have to wait and see what someone else does before you get to be kind of well-intentioned toward yourself or them. You don't even have to wait to see what your own mind does. You just can generate a positive um, mental state that way. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. 
May I be free from suffering. It's nice. It's deep, actually. Sitting, um, the more that I'm around meditation and the effort to uh, sit daily or whatever is possible, the more that it seems like it's um, a practice of uh, doing something that's doing nothing. Practice doing nothing. And I just, I feel so conditioned to only doing something. So it's, it's um, I don't know whether it's, it's uh, the force of my mind trying to get me to not meditate, because <laughs> it definitely doesn't want to meditate, <laughs> but I'd like to. <laughs> um, but it's a lot stronger than I am. Um, and so I think, is that just my mind, or is that like a total lack of faith, because I don't, I, it's like I have to connect to something that says, yeah, this is definitely a worthwhile thing to do, Right. and I don't have that. If you just sit and relax on your cushion and just let yourself just be there and just be, is it a nice feeling? I mostly just sit and suffer on my cushion. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could try something different. <laughs> I can relax if I get up from my cushion and go to the kitchen and make tea. It sounds like you crank on yourself a lot when you practice so maybe you just just sit there and just be there and don't do anything really and consciously just relax and and let your sort of practice be more natural rather than trying to focus too hard sounds like you're kind of creating some conflict there because no matter where you go you're still kind of held within the depth of being right no matter what you do you're you know you're still rooted in the very basic level of existence and it's nice to connect with that sometimes it's very refreshing and I think it's proven to have all kinds of health benefits it you know there's all kinds of studies now about how really a good thing it is so if you need to tell yourself it's good it is good um, it's good to do nothing <laughs> it's good to let your mind do nothing and run down and just stop that's relevant to you too to sort of just uh, you know if when you're sitting you can just kind of be there and then sort of gently approach your breath rather than, you know, <laughs> feel like you have to be doing something good for yourself. I think the goodness can just kind of come up from below in a certain way. The being good to yourself. Yeah. But I guess maybe more question of um, just be, not be good to yourself, just be. Just let yourself be. My beat immediately turns into beat suffering. <laughs> really? What do you suffer about? With my mind, in other words, which is a, which is a mind that's not in good state. So uh -huh. it's not um, it's not uh, any fun, much fun to hang out with with your mind in a bad state. So mm -hmm. so what to do? Get up, or how do you stay? And could you get a, a flower and sit and look at it, or something? You know, or something like that. Also, try to use your body um, as an object. Root yourself in your body, too. Rather, don't necessarily concentrate so small on your breathing, but just feel your whole body at once. And see if you can really, like, spend time there rather than sort of spend time in your mind. See if you can come down a little bit out of your mind some. Just get heavy and sit there. And if you need to look at something nice or even take a break, go to a movie, that can be good. Two. Read. 
read, yeah, if you want. Mm -hmm. Use your own discernment about what's going to be a good practice for you. If you do find yourself sitting there and just going around and around, that probably isn't the best. But within your sitting, if you could become more grounded in your body, I think it would probably be helpful. You can try going from the top of your body, like down slowly. Do you know how to do that? And go down to your feet and then start again and go down because it gives you something. If you're a person that thinks a lot, then um, it can give you something sort of very firm to grab a hold of with your attention. And it's good because it can teach you how to get out of that state that... I mean, there's also, your question is similar, that you have a story about yourself, that you are this kind of thing, and you are this kind of person, and it's just a relative story, like you're much, much more than that, and much, much less than that. It's just, like, you believe this, and you invest in the belief that you're, you know, whatever your mind is doing, or whatever you think of yourself, but there's so much more in your experience than that, but that is a particularly charged area that you keep going back to. So part of using the other objects is to get yourself away from constantly going back to that habit of saying, I'm an angry person or, you know, I'm not in a good place. Like, there's a lot of things in your life that aren't even related to that, probably. I don't know if that makes sense. It can seem, like, all-encompassing, but there's a lot of other things. Is that helpful at all? Um, Yeah, um, yes and no. Uh, It's like... Am I asking a question about how to acquire some skill or some faith? Yeah. <laughs> Both. Both. Yeah. There is change. I mean, it does, you know, there is a transformation that happens. And bad, yeah. Yeah. Almost regardless of what you do, like some of my friends have said, like when, like if you just keep going to retreats and you just happen to be in the room somehow, it doesn't matter how bad your practice is, that somehow there's a benefit. I don't know why. it. Ha- it's some, there's a mysterious aspect to it also. Um, it, there was one person here. Um, she asked, then you, yeah. then you. No, just okay. something about it. Oh. I you recommend. I, I've done on tapes with John Kabat-Zinn about body scans. Mm-hmm. Those are really helpful when I can't focus by myself. Right, to have a tape? Yeah. Yeah, that really makes sense. I wanted to relate to this too and say that I came to meditation thinking sitting on the pillow was where you found peace. And I no longer think that. Um, there's a great struggle going on most of the time on the pillow. But it comes, that peace or that search comes into your life in a slow process when you're off the pillow. And you cannot... No matter what kind of thing you have, you have no idea what kind of an effect it might have. It's not a direct thing. It's a right. transformation. And it's slow and... and um, well, it's related to visiting the pillow and it's just one Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 so Margot and then... I was just going to suggest still. also, sometimes sounds are really useful mm-hmm. to tune into sounds. Right. So even the chamber music or some music you mm-hmm. listen to that's not too complex like maybe not a symphony orchestra but music yeah music meditation can be really nice that's true yeah I'm like, sure everybody please struggle with this all the time too and I create like a little game so um, but walking meditation helps me focus in on my body and I just the other thing I do, um, 
because I, I do also have a struggle with the idea of sitting there and not doing anything. So I sit my meditation now while I'm on the bus. So I'm not, I'm not, not doing anything. I'm commuting, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck there, right? Yeah. But I'm going out and doing it every day, well, five days a week. So, anyway, I just wanted to relate to that. And so, you know, sometimes not being able to sit is my practice. It's like, oh, okay, I'm not sitting again. (laughs) Yeah, exercise sometimes is good that way, too. Whatever. Yeah. how much of my brain is conditioned and what a habit those all of those constructs are there. By sitting and trying to get mind to a one-pointedness, I can start to reroute some of those connections. Very good, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it really works over time. It's working. It's getting better. That's good. <laughs> if you're looking for faith, it does work. Rerouting, right? Rerouting. Okay, well, it's getting kind of late. Is there anyone else? I don't know if it's getting late, but it seems like people are drifting off. Does it, is there someone else who wants to say something who hasn't said anything who is waiting till the end? Or um, okay, well, thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.